0: The Holy Gospel according to Matthew, the 15th chapter. Glory, Glory to, to you, you O Lord. Lord. Jesus called the crowd to him and said to them, Listen and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but it is what comes out of the mouth that defiles. And the disciples approached and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees took offense what they heard what you said? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if one blind person guides another, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain this parable to us. Then he said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth enters the stomach and goes out into the sewer? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this is what defiles. For out of the heart come evil intentions murder, adultery, fornication, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile. Jesus left that place and went away to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Just then a Canaanite woman from that region came out and started shouting, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is tormented by a demon. But he did not answer her at all. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she keeps shouting after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. He answered, It is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, Woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed instantly. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to you, O Christ. Tuesday morning, that is to say, after we all learned what the heck a derecho is, when I drove into church, I found myself disconnected from absolutely everything. I was the only one in the building, and the doors were locked, and the landlines did not work, and my cell phone did not work, and I had no internet. We did have electricity, which is why I came in. We didn't have it at home. So I could turn on my computer, but without internet, I couldn't do what is always my first step in preparing for this week's sermon, which is Gloria Day's men's Bible study on the coming text for the week, nor could I do what is often my second step, which is then to check out Luther Seminary's Working Preacher website and hear four professors talk about each of the texts nor could I do the thing that is often my third step, and that is to meet, in this case, online with other area Lutheran pastors, and we kind of shoot around a few things about this week's text. I was completely disconnected from it all. My goodness, I thought I'm going to have to write a sermon all by myself. Fortunately, Deacon Pam came in the building soon, and I was able to bounce a few thoughts off her. The first impression thing I had noticed when I had unconnectedly looked at the text was, was how those first two, for starters, Romans and Isaiah, are so connected to each other. And what they are connected by is an expansive vision of that day when one day all of everybody in the whole wide world will, by God, be connected, not by the World Wide Web, but rather by the worldwide reach of the Kingdom of God and the worldwide worship of God. As opposed to many people, nations, churches, religions, partisans, patriots, politicians, and more, so many who are so often so all about themselves as opposed to others, especially those who are perceived by one metric or another as being different from them, different from us. Isaiah and Romans are all about the greatness of a God whose great love for us, strong as it is, is no stronger than God's love for all, including those whom we'd actually prefer not to be in any way connected to. Which actually right off the bat gave me a sermon title for for, for the week, so sometimes that's where I start. The sermon title this week, The Allness, not the Usness of God's Love. By the way, English majors? Uh, according to dictionary.com which I went to later, allness is actually a word um, while usness actually apparently not so much, but I like it and so sinning boldly I kept it in the title the allness, not the usness of God's love seen first in that reading from Isaiah which is the very first part of the third and last section of Isaiah sometimes it's called third Isaiah and which speaks to a time when the Jews were returning to Jerusalem after a devastating military defeat and then forced exile into slavery in Babylon back in Jerusalem decades later they found a city and a temple in ruins and their desire then was to rebuild their walls and their temple then to bunker down behind their walls and to hell with the rest of the world especially those Babylonians today we would call them Iraqis. And those Persians, Iranians, and those Assyrians, Syrians, and those Egyptians, Egyptians. Whose kingdoms the children of Israel had been trying to carve out their own kingdom in the midst of ever since Joshua fought the battle of Jericho and David captured Jerusalem to make it his capital city. But back from Babylon, the prevailing sentiment now was, we want nothing to do with any of them. We're going to rebuild our city walls and our temple walls and live lives disconnected from all of those thems, which included keeping their race pure by now banning any Jew from marrying one of them. But into that sense of separatist nationalism, and racially clean religiosity was spoken the expansive vision and prophecy of Isaiah who envisions and prophesies of a time when people will not be divided by race or bloodline or politics or persuasions or any other categories including religious ones which over the years have been used exclusively, and by exclusively I mean used to exclude, rather, said Isaiah, the time will come when people be united by the love of God and by love for God and by loving obedience to God. For thus says the Lord God, I will bring to my holy mountain Iraqis and Iranians and Syrians and Egyptians and more, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. And here you weren't even thinking about the love of God being as radical as it is compared to the ways of the world and too often the world's religions. My house shall be a house of prayer for all peoples. Wednesday, when uh, Gloria Day uh, opens our building for prayer. People can come in and pray. Uh, A man I'd ever met walked in and asked if he could pray. He was not a member of Gloria Day. I'm not sure he knew the church was open. He was not white. I said, of course. And then he went to the front pew and talked to to God while I went to my office where God talked to me. Uh, reminding me, for example, of Dr. King's words that the most segregated time in this nation remains Sunday morning. My house, the Lord of the Jews and us, said to the Jews and us, shall be a house of prayer for all peoples. And there it is, the allness, not the usness, of the love of God. Paul, in Romans 9 through 11, wrestled with questions of the allness and usness of the love of God, the God of the Jews, albeit from an opposite direction, that being from the direction of a Jew who had initially and violently rejected Christ and Christians only then dramatically and miraculously to encounter the blinding glory of the risen Christ who did not, as one would expect, biblically speaking, smite him, but rather called him loved him, converted him. And then Paul became the force he did become in proclaiming that we, like him, are made right in our relationship with God, not by obedience to any laws, but rather by grace, the pure gift of love and forgiveness for him and for us. But when Paul then started preaching the the gospel of what he called Justification by grace through faith in Christ—it was Gentiles, it was not His own people, the Jews, who received that message of faith in Christ, which left Paul wrestling painfully with the question: If we are saved by faith in Christ, but then my people, most of them, most of the Jews, don't believe in Jesus as the Christ, are they now for now rejected by God and cut off from left out of the all-embracing allness of the love and reach of God? This being Paul, his complete answer to that question is of course three chapters long uh, and takes a lot of detours and sometimes yes you feel like you're drowning in there Uh, But here's a summary, I think, pretty accurately of what he says. Has God rejected the Jews? By no means. God has promised they are God's own people forever, and God does not break promises. But did you notice, he says, because this is pretty cool, that because most Jews rejected Jesus, the gospel ended up being Sent off in different directions. It started being preached to the Gentiles, whom the Jews always have rejected, and the Gentiles have been believing in Christ and are being saved by grace through which they knew the forgiveness of their sins. Funny how that worked out, Paul said. But God's not done yet, Paul also says, for God has not turned from the Jews, and so they will, in the end, be saved, he says. But it won't be because of their obedience to the law. It will be because of the same mercy and forgiveness of sins through which God in Christ has been reaching now to the Gentiles. For God, Paul says, quote, has imprisoned all, Jew and Gentile, in disobedience, so that he may be merciful to all, unquote. The allness, not the usness of the love of God. Which takes us to our gospel, reading. actually the second half. You know, it's really two texts and I just couldn't work it all in. We're going to go to the second part where we have this seemingly strange story in which the one who doesn't seem to want God to be the God of all is of all people, Jesus. Jesus who in this text leads his disciples to a place in what is now southern Lebanon and which then like now was not a place where you would really plan to run into any Jews and so when a woman immediately came running after him, she wasn't a Jew, she was a Canaanite. Canaanites, you should know, were pretty much the oldest enemies the Jews had, Canaanites being those whom Joshua, judges, and kings, including David, had violently cleared from the land in order to build a kingdom. But now Jesus is verbally pounced on by a Canaanite woman, shouting, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is tormented. a demon. There is so much in that short prayer. She asks for mercy, not anything she deserves, which we've seen Jesus previously hand out all over the place. She calls him Lord, which could be uh, understood to mean Sir, as kind of in the Middle Ages, my Lord. Uh, But it could also just as well, same word, be understood to mean Lord, as in Lord God. And she calls him Son of David, which is the name Jews used for the Messiah whom they did expect to come. So in her few words here are found both a request for help as well as a confession of faith. This is where it gets odd, though, as Jesus seemingly acting not like Jesus at all doesn't even acknowledge that she's there. But, oh my, is she ever there? And she lets him know She keeps shouting her prayer, at which point the disciples say, Lord, send her away, she's a noisy nuisance. But he doesn't send her away, which, by the way, I think is very significant to what's going on here. Stay tuned. Instead, he finally addresses her. But he does so, sounding not to our ears like Jesus at all, as he says to her, I was sent only to the lost sheep, of the house of Israel which didn't deter her still as now kneeling at his feet she said quietly this time Lord help me Jesus' response then can easily leave us wondering who are you and what did you do to Jesus as he says to her it's not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dog Two things to note, lest you want to make that sound too nice. The word used for dog here is not the word for a pet or puppy. The word used for dogs here was used for annoying and despised street dogs. And two, hating Gentiles, Jews hating Gentiles like Canaanites, routinely disparaged them as Gentile dogs the kind of people you do build whatever walls you can so as not to be polluted by them. And that's the word Jesus uses here. Nevertheless, she persisted. Yes, Lord, she said, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. She she knows that she's not asking for a place at the table. She's not asking to take away in anybody's place, she's not asking to be one of God's chosen people. She's just asking for crumbs. Her faith so deep that she believes even just crumbs of His grace and mercy would be more than enough. At which point Jesus says, "Woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish." And her daughter was healed. So there are a variety of takes. There is not a consensus on how to understand what can be seen as the really un-Jesus-like words and behavior of Jesus in this story. A A traditional take is that Jesus was doing and saying what he did as a way of testing the sincerity and depth of the woman's faith. This does not work for me. I think she came loaded with faith Certainly more faith than plenty of others who, in the past, he had helped immediately. Another fairly traditional take says Jesus isn't here saying that the gospel and the kingdom of God would never reach beyond the Jews, but he did understand his mission to be one that started with the Jews. And in that take, Jesus, in his words here, wasn't saying no to God's love for the Gentiles. He was just saying, not yet which doesn't work for me either because I see Jesus in the Gospels way often uh, when a choice needed to be made putting compassion ahead of protocol. Another take holds that Jesus being not only divine but also human, fully human could only truly be fully human if he lived by faith not by sight. And if he lived by faith not by sight then his own sense of his own identity and mission might well have been something that he had to live and grow into rather than something he knew fully from day one. As if, you know, when he's two years old and Joseph is reading him Bible stories, uh, Jesus says, and you know what else, Dad? When I'm 33, I'm going to die on the cross for the salvation of the world. By, w- by way of taking his live by faith, not by sight, humanness, fully seriously some suggest that it was Jesus who needed this encounter because humanly he was a first century Jew who actually needed to broaden his own understanding of how wide-reaching his mission was meant to be in the same way that some of us humans sometimes can only learn some things about ourselves that we're meant to learn in relationship with others including and especially others who aren't exactly like us. Personally, there are things about that take that I do like. Uh, I could even go there. I could even stay there. Especially because I do think that too often our understanding of Jesus um, in it, uh, the the reality of his divinity just keeps overshadowing the reality of his true humanity. And this, this take kind of counters that. But there's also a fourth take. And you are under no obligation to go with me here, but it does remain the place I land uh, with this admittedly odd-seeming story. I'm going to suggest that this story is not just a healing encounter, but a teaching encounter, and the ones being taught are his disciples. And in that understanding, in that first moment when Jesus doesn't even acknowledge or even look at the woman who'd come to him, it was because he was looking at them, looking at her. And they did see her in her Gentile dogness. And to them, she was a nuisance to be done and sent away. But remember, Jesus didn't send her away. Rather, I want to suggest for their benefit, he started repeating some of the dog whistle taglines of those in that day, including the 12, who did have a separatist an exclusive and even possibly racist view of their God and the narrowness of God's mercies and love. And now before their eyes they saw their prejudices parroted by Jesus, which had to seem a little wrong right away, only then to be met and met again and met again by such powerful and persistent faith faith in Jesus and remember how it was just just last week's text where he had said to his frightened disciples oh you of such little faith but now they see even before he names it for them a person, a woman a Gentile a Canaanite with such, such deep faith and they look at him and their eyes meet. And I think his eyes kind of sparkled for a second, because he sees them, he sees them just almost kinda of, kinda of get it. And he smiles at them then, and then he smiles at the woman, and then he says to her, Oh woman, so great is your faith. What you've asked is done. Done even though she's a gentile woman foreigner, Canaanite, whose ancestors' blood the actual King David had on his sword and on his hands. But entering the world now wasn't the kingdom of King David, but rather the kingdom of God, whose son and son of David would reach to a cross, for his hands would be bloodied with his own blood because God's love is love for all and Jesus' plan his intent, his desire his promise is that he came for the salvation of all all Jews all Gentiles all who are one in our disobedience which is to say our sin which is to say our need for a Savior of sinners, all of us. Lord Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on us all. And grow, grow us all in mercy toward one another. Amen.